You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 252, The Gordon Riots. We're returning to England this week to go over some important events of 1780. The American Revolution was beginning its sixth year and had only become more of a mess with the entry of France and Spain into the war. As with any war, the cost of fighting this one caused pain and sacrifice among the people. Taxes were up to pay for a large army and navy. Trade was risky due to privateers and enemy naval vessels. After years of pain and sacrifice for the war effort, people began asking each other, what are we really fighting for, and is it worth it? More and more criticism circled around King George III. It was literally treason to criticize the king directly. For decades, there had been an understanding that the king would remain aloof from politics, and that criticism for bad policy would be directed at his ministers only. But George was much more involved in policy than his predecessors, and he saw maintaining control of his North American colonies as something that he had to advocate. As the war's popularity fell, the king's reputation sank along with it. In episode 237, I discussed some of the demonstrations in Ireland in late 1779 that were an expression of the unrest caused by the economic impact of the war. Workers in England also seemed to be increasingly upset by their situation and were looking for changes in policy that would make things better. In December of 1779, a group of freeholders in Yorkshire formed the Yorkshire Association. The association sought to petition Parliament for, quote, economical reform. Specifically, they wanted to do something about the high taxes and wasteful positions within government. The Reverend Christopher Wyville was a large landowner in the Yorkshire area. He became the driving force behind the new movement. He hoped to organize not only his area, but the surrounding counties. The plan was to coordinate a series of petitions to Parliament to give them more emphasis by them all arriving at once and to spark reform by responsive politicians in the months leading up to the 1780 parliamentary elections. Weibel began with a media campaign, getting area newspapers to print articles about the extravagant spending by the government, the loss of trade, and the general decline in the standard of living for the landed gentry. He encouraged anonymous letters to newspapers, which would encourage the people to support his petitions. In order to get the attention of local landowners, part of it was a suggestion that the government, as part of its efforts to raise more funds for the war, would revamp its land tax assessments to the great disadvantage of the region. Now, one key line of the petition that Wyville was sending around said, quote, Whence the Crown has acquired a great and unconstitutional influence, which, if not checked, may soon 
prove fatal to the liberties of this country. Now, many Whigs had been arguing that the king should have nothing more than a ceremonial role in government, much like George I and George II had. George III's active involvement in recommending policy to his ministers was seen as an overstep. The fact that the king's recommended policies resulted in disaster for Britain was evidence of why kings should not behave this way. The Yorkshire Association, which met in late December 1779, with over 600 landowners present, approved this petition to Parliament. The movement spread to surrounding counties, and petitions to Parliament grew. By early 1780, Parliament had received 40 such petitions, signed by thousands of voters. Considering that only a little over 200,000 people had the right to vote in Britain at this time, members of Parliament took these numbers seriously. Discussion began of organizing these protests into a, quote, National Assembly, or, quote, Anti-Parliament, to return political power to the people, by which they meant the full 3% of the population who owned land and had the right to vote. They did not want to leave the power in the hands of just a few hundred aristocrats who really controlled all the power at this time. The freeholders wanted their own influence on government to be greater, but they were not looking into giving political power to the other 97% of British subjects who could not vote at this time. Even this limited assertion of power by the landed class was unprecedented. The movement drew great controversy for involving small landowners in public policy, something that should be left to their betters. Stirring up the voters was bad enough, but criticizing the king's role in government was arguably criminal sedition. While controversial, though, these ideas were not new. Radical Whigs had discussed the idea of a new national body before, and had also traditionally supported that the king be very limited to a ceremonial role only. Many earlier pamphlets had also suggested creating a new political organization. But all of this had been talk up until this time. The current political climate seemed to be giving these ideas a chance of actual enactment. Opponents derisively referred to the new protest organizations as a, quote, Congress making reference to the treasonous Continental Congress in America that also challenged government authority. The House of Commons was supposed to represent the common people, again, by which I mean the 3% of voters who own land but who did not have aristocratic titles. Having another political body organized by these same people to counter the House of Commons seemed absurd, unless the criminal motive of overthrowing the government was the real motive. Now, of course, the House of Commons was really controlled by a rather elite group through some very creative districting and other political practices that really did keep a lot of the control in the commons in the hands of the aristocracy. So other proposals suggested greatly expanding and reforming the House of Commons to allow in new blood that would enact these popular reforms. But again, opponents saw this as dangerous interference in the fundamental structure of the government by people who could not possibly understand the ramifications of their suggested changes. Members of Parliament especially saw this as a direct attack on their authority. Although these were just petitions, talk at the political meetings already predicted that Parliament would reject them and that they would have to take more extreme measures to reassert political power. Calls to take the Irish receipt meant to emulate Ireland 
which was on the verge of revolution itself, to take extra-legal actions to force change. One option discussed was a tax boycott, everyone simply refusing to pay their taxes. Such action might not only cause the war effort to fail, it might lead to another civil war within Britain. There were radical Whigs within Parliament, particularly the Rockingmites, who tried to use this movement to their political advantage. Another prominent Whig, John Wilkes, also got involved. Wyville and the Yorkshireists were reluctant to join with current career politicians, believing they would simply co-opt the movement and real reforms would not happen. Even so, many members of Parliament who were up for re-election in these areas wanted to show that they were on the side of the radicals and that they could be instruments of change. On April 6th, John Dunning called for a vote on two questions. Dunning was a member of the radical Whig establishment. He had been Solicitor General of England and Wales and had been a member of Parliament for more than a decade. At the same time, he aligned himself with the radicals. Dunning had served as one of the attorneys who defended John Wilkes many years earlier when the Crown was trying to destroy Wilkes. Dunning had a reputation as a liberal reformer and someone who fought against costly pensions and sinecures for well-connected elites, although he was not above taking them himself. Dunning's motions called on Parliament to vote on a resolution that said, quote, The influence of the Crown has increased and is increasing and ought to be diminished. The second motion said that, quote, It is competent to this House to examine into and correct abuses in the expenditure of the civil list revenues, as well as in every other branch of public revenue, whenever it shall appear expedient to the wisdom of this House to do so. In other words, Parliament should address the concerns of the petitioners. The Prime Minister, Lord North, strongly opposed these motions as a direct attack on the King. The first motion could have been treated as sedition. It was not, in part because the Ministry knew the position was a politically popular one. Whigs, especially, and the government more generally, wanted the King to remain aloof from policy and leave that to his ministers. That was what the Yorkshire petitions were demanding. Despite the Prime Minister's opposition, Dunning's motion passed by a vote of 233 to 215. The vote was a warning to both the Ministry and George III himself. A king who involved himself in public policy that became unpopular could result in the king himself becoming unpopular with his subjects. Dunning's other motion was a little less controversial. Of course, Parliament had the right to review expenditures, which Parliament had to pay for, and it was passed by acclamation with no real opposition. Looking into waste, fraud, and abuse at a time when voters are unhappy with expenses is a time-honored practice for politicians of any age. The vote on Dunning's motion looked as though it might cause serious problems for government policy, but another event quickly overtook Parliament's vote to recommend that the king stay out of politics. Whig ideology held as its core principles not only the role of Parliament over the King in running the government, but also the supremacy of Protestantism and suppressing Catholicism. To the modern listener, the anti-Catholic sentiment might seem strange. For those in the Church of England, the fight with Catholic was not really over obscure religious doctrines, like whether transubstantiation was real or whether confession should be a sacrament. 
Rather, it was much more political. Protestants viewed Catholic loyalty to the Pope as a risk to all liberties. Protestants often derisively referred to Catholics as papists for their slavish obedience to the Pope. Papal authority was seen as absolute and would not safeguard traditional rights of Englishmen. English Protestants looked at the rights of Catholic countries like France and Spain as proof of this point. Allowing Catholics to have a place in British society put fundamental liberties at risk. A good comparison of this might be the way some modern Christian conservatives in the West view Islam. Whatever disagreements there may be over religious doctrine, the driving antipathy has more to do with the way Christians view the government's and lack of freedom in self-proclaimed Islamic countries, and they don't want to see that imported. That's the way Protestants thought of Catholicism in the 18th century. The English Civil War, only a century earlier, had been fought primarily because Parliament wanted to prevent King James II from allowing more Catholics to have a place in British society, and also to ensure the primacy of Parliament over the King in setting policy. Another radical Whig member of Parliament at this time was George Gordon. As the third son of a duke, Gordon was not in line to inherit a title, but he certainly did come from a wealthy and influential family. At the age of seven, his family purchased an ensign's commission for him. When he was 11, however, he decided he wanted to join the Navy. Several years before he resigned his naval commission, at the ripe old age of 25, Gordon got elected to Parliament. Another member of Parliament essentially bought him a seat so that Gordon would not run against him for a different seat. Gordon was an outspoken opponent of the war in America and even spoke in favor of American independence. A regular critic of the North Ministry, Gordon was also a pretty disagreeable guy who would also attack other radical Whigs. He regularly attacked Whig leader James Fox. As the Yorkshire movement seemed to be gaining steam in late 1779 and early 1780, Gordon had another issue that he used to stir up the public. In 1778, Parliament had passed the Papists Act, which was actually a reform to an earlier 1698 law. Now, before you get too excited that I'm going to do a deep dive into the legislative history of this matter, I'll warn you that I need to keep it short. The 1698 Popery Act was passed by Parliament a few years after the Glorious Revolution that had thrown out King James II and brought in William and Mary, because James was seen as too friendly with the Catholics. The Popery Act, along with other laws passed around this time, barred Catholics from purchasing or inheriting land, which also meant that they could not vote. It also prevented Catholics from serving in the British Army and called for life imprisonment for any priest saying Mass or educating students in Britain. The 1778 Papists Act was a liberal reform of some of these earlier measures. It was sponsored by John Dunning, the same radical Whig who I just mentioned earlier had sponsored the motion to tell the king to stay out of politics. Dunning's 1778 bill said that if a Catholic subject took an oath, they could have certain rights restored. The oath rejected the authority of Catholic claimants to the British throne. It rejected the Pope's legal authority over British subjects. It also swore that the oath-taker would not follow any Catholic edicts to kill the Protestant King of England. If a Catholic subject took this oath, the 1778 Act 
permitted him to purchase or inherit land and also to join the army. The act also removed the penalty of lifetime imprisonment for a priest saying mass within Britain. The 1778 Act was an important wartime measure. It would help with enlistments by allowing Catholics to enlist in the army. It was also seen as a way of preventing a rebellion by Catholics, particularly in Ireland, if the government grew too weak as a result of the war. Some radical Whigs, like George Gordon, were horrified when these reforms passed. The following year, Gordon formed the Protestant Association, devoted to repealing these reforms. Gordon successfully prevented the Scottish Parliament from passing a reform bill similar to the Papists Act that was passed by Parliament. Following that success, Gordon attempted to get the British Parliament to repeal its bill. On May 29, 1780, Gordon called for a march on Parliament to take place on June 2nd. The purpose of the march was to deliver a petition to repeal the Papists Act of 1778 and make sure Catholics had no place in Britain. Gordon gave numerous speeches about the dangers of letting Catholics into the army, that these reforms would allow Catholics to restore an absolute monarchy, and that, despite any oaths, the Catholics would work with Catholics on the continent to overthrow the Protestant government in Britain. Historians who looked into this matter argue that the protesters who actually marched on June 2nd were not just motivated by anti-Catholic views. They represented a much larger anti-government sentiment motivated by a stagnating economy, inflation, and unemployment. There was also a large contingent of anti-war protesters, although many of them were probably against the war primarily because of its economic impact. With the mob outside of Parliament, Gordon entered the House of Commons to deliver his petition. As the protesters waited outside, some of them began attacking the carriages of members who were just arriving at Parliament. House members scrambled to summon a detachment of regulars to disperse the mob. They then overwhelmingly voted down the petition by a vote of 192 to 6. Although the crowd left Parliament, angry protesters continued to march through the streets of London. That night, they attacked several foreign embassies that were known to have Catholic chapels inside of them. They also destroyed the homes of several wealthy Catholics who lived in London. Officials called out constables who arrested a number of rioters, but the mayor did not read the Riot Act, which would have permitted authorities to force the rioters to return home or face violent consequences. The following night, June 3rd, the rioters invaded the neighborhood of Moorfields, where many poor Catholic Irish immigrants worked. The rioters burned homes and beat up suspected Catholics. The rioters also attacked Newgate Prison, freeing rioters being held there from the prior night. Someone scrawled on the wall that the prisoners were freed by, quote, His Majesty King Mob. Over the next three nights, mobs rampaged through London, wreaking havoc and destroying property. On June 7th, the protesters burned the home of Lord Chief Justice Lord Mansfield. They also attacked the Bank of England and were only thwarted by the arrival of several companies of regulars who defended the bank. Similarly, soldiers had to block a mob trying to assault the Prime Minister's home at 10 Downing Street. Even after five days of open and uncontrolled rioting, the Lord Mayor still refused to read the Riot Act. He was a radical Whig himself, 
and did not want to be seen as crushing his own political supporters. By the night of June 7th, however, military officials had had enough. They issued orders to the regulars to go out into the streets and fire on any groups of four or more people who refused orders to disperse. The regulars ended up shooting and killing 285 protesters and wounding an estimated 200 more. I suspect the number of wounded is rather low compared to reality because many wounded people probably returned home and did not seek medical care since it might result in their arrest. Authorities did end up arresting about 450 protesters. The Gordon riots, as they came to be known, were probably the worst London had ever seen. I think only the Great Fire of London before the riots and the Battle of Britain much later during World War II were the only events that did more damage to the city. Between 20 and 30 leaders were tried and executed. Lord Gordon was charged with high treason for his role, but was acquitted. His lawyers successfully argued that Gordon had only intended to create political pressure for his petition, which was designed to protect Britain and the king from outside threats. Because he did not intend for the riots to destroy London, he could not be found guilty of treason. The riots also damaged the political career of John Wilkes, who ended up leading a militia against the rioters in an attempt to restore order. The rioters were just the sort of people who usually supported Wilkes, so his attempts to subdue them cost him politically. Lord Mayor Brackley Kennett, who had refused to read the Riot Act against the protesters, was later convicted of criminal negligence and fined. The riot also damaged Britain's reputation abroad. The ministry had been attempting to draw Catholic Austria into an alliance against Spain and France. These anti-Catholic riots in London resulted in an end to those talks. Britain had also opened secret negotiations with Spain to get it to end the war with Britain. After hearing of the riots, Spain also ended negotiations, not necessarily because of the anti-Catholic sentiment of the mobs, but because the Spanish believed that the British government was on the verge of collapse. The Gordon riots remained a deep scar on London and would be remembered for generations. Next time, we return to New Jersey where British forces from New York destroy the town of Connecticut Farms. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Train Ants, George Davis, and Mike Hager. 
and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Lee Seam, Michael Mulhern, and TJ Walker. Thanks also to Margaret Valentine, Joshua Griff, and Wayne Belisle, who joined the Privy Council last month with their support of the podcast on Patreon. I also want to give a quick thanks to Steve Sunison and David Weissmiller for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. One question that many people seem to ask me about the revolution is how a rich and powerful country like Britain could lose to a relatively small collection of colonies with less wealth and no military. This week's episode focuses on what I think is a big reason for that. The economic pain among local populations in Britain turned against the war. In some wars, a population can see the need to continue because losing it would bring horrific results, even worse than the suffering in the wartime conditions. But in this case, the British people began asking themselves if the suffering was worth it, and many were concluding that the answer was no. When a government loses the support of their own people for continuing a war, they've got a big problem. In this week's episode, we see how the costs of war are causing suffering to the workers in London, and how people are beginning to believe that if the government won't end the war, it might be time to end the government. Wars always seem to be a test of wills between countries to see whose people can bear more suffering for a longer time, and that was certainly the case with the American Revolution. Governments that wish to remain in power must, at some point, bend to the popular will. Even kings need some level of support from the people in order to remain kings. The British monarchy has been rather effective in spreading around wealth to potential troublemakers to keep them from making trouble. John Dunning, the radical who proposed reducing the king's influence in government and getting rid of wasteful pensions and sinecures, received a seat on the king's privy council and a title of Baron Lord Ashburton. These moves gave him a good annual income and removed him from the House of Commons. It kept him happy and quiet for the rest of his life. The Yorkshire Association movement is often seen by political historians as the beginning of a reform movement that eventually led to major political reform in 1832 that greatly extended the right to vote in Britain and also led to massive redistricting to give something closer to equal representation in Parliament. Now, this would be more than 50 years later, so the pace of reform was slow, but it did eventually move in the right direction. For me, it's interesting to remember that this reform movement in British politics began because people were unhappy with affairs resulting from the American Revolution. Many governments, however, are resistant to reform, and if they can't bribe you into being not a problem for the leadership, then its leaders can also use their power to crush you. After George Gordon's acquittal for his role in the riots, Gordon gave up his seat in Parliament. A few years later, the hardcore Protestant was excommunicated from the Church of England. After that, he was convicted of defaming the French Queen Marie Antoinette and the French ambassador, and after fleeing the country and then returning, he did a five-year stint in prison. Shortly before his sentencing in 1788, this proud defender of the Church of England converted to Judaism, changing his name to Israel Bar Abraham Gordon. At the end of his five-year prison sentence in 1793, Gordon was required to appear in court and affirm that he would remain on good behavior upon his release. The judge ordered him to remove his hat, which, as a Jew, he refused to do. He remained in prison, where he died of typhoid fever a few months later. 
Uh, George Gordon, by the way, is no relation to the namesake of the 19th century George Gordon, who was also known as Lord Byron. The Gordon riots themselves had a huge influence on Britain. Charles Dickens used the riots as a backdrop for two of his books. There is still debate today on how much of the riots were really anti-Catholic sentiment and how much of it was unhappiness with economic conditions. It was certainly a combination of things for the protesters. But at the end of the day, the decision to give more rights to Catholics and the economic problems were both the result of the war in America. So the war in America is really threatening the political stability of Britain itself. There are several good books about the Gordon riots. The one I've chosen for my recommendation is King Mob, the story of Lord George Gordon and the riots of 1780 by Christopher Hibbert. Now, this is Hibbert's second book, first published back in 1958. Hibbert, of course, went on to publish dozens of other books, mostly about British or European history in a career spanning more than 50 years. He passed away shortly before the release of his final book in 2009. His book about King Mob is a relatively short one, under 200 pages, but a good read on the topic. It's been through several reprintings over the years. I linked to a hardback version on Amazon. I've noticed that lately Amazon doesn't always show on its hardback displays a link to paperback versions, so you may need to search for the cheaper paperback if that's what you want. I've also included a bunch of online resources to other information about the Gordon riots at the end of the blog for this episode. For my recommendation here, though, I wanted to recommend something from the Yorkshire Association. It's a book-slash-pamphlet, just over 50 pages long, that was written by Christopher Wyville himself, who I discussed in the main episode as the man behind the Yorkshire Association. The document is called A State of the Representation of the People of England on the Principles of Mr. Pitt in 1785, and this was published in 1793. As I said, the Yorkshire Association was the beginning of a much larger political movement that lasted well into the 19th century. This is a primary document from that movement, and as always, I've included a link to it on archive.org. My question this week asks, is George Washington recognized as a traitor by the British? Well, the short answer is no. While as a British subject, Washington's actions of levying war against the British crown no doubt constituted treason under British law, and while some individuals in London may have believed Washington to be a traitor, he was never prosecuted, indicted, or even charged with any crimes. In answer to a lot of questions I get about treason and the American Revolution, I usually like to say, it's only treason if you lose. Overthrowing a government is pretty much always against that government's laws. But in seeking to assert your own laws, the question is decided not by one law or the other, but by force of arms. If you win, your actions will be found legitimate and justified under your new government. If you lose, better watch out. Britain realized that trying to impose legal penalties made no sense in a full-on war. After losing, Britain moved on and tried to establish beneficial trading relationships with the U.S., receiving former rebels like John Adams as honored diplomats. As the UK-US relationship has grown closer over the decades, the British have honored George Washington by putting up a statue of him in London. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either on email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. 
I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.